five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. This week I'm doing something a little different. Instead of interviewing a guest, I decided to play back a speech by Canadian Space Agency President Sylvain Laporte we recorded from the recent Canadian Space Summit held in Ottawa. In this speech, Monsieur Laporte discusses what he calls key messages of the space program from the government's perspective. On a programming note, this is the last podcast of the year, and we'll return with a new show on Thursday, January 11. From the growing team at Space Q, we wish you and your families all the best this holiday season, and Happy New Year. What I want to do this morning is to, uh, is to convey to you some, uh, some key messages with respect to um, the dynamics of the, uh, of the space program and what's happening in the, uh, in the space program, uh, at least from a government perspective. So I understand yesterday you had um, very uh, diversified perspectives. I understand that there was some folks or, you know, from, uh, from the arts perspective. I know you've had quite a number of, uh, of industry folks that have uh, spoken to you. Um, and now you're going to hear about what the uh, government perspective is. All of those perspectives, um, from my view, complement each other. We're all collaborating to move the space program further, to take things to, uh, to the next level. So quite happy um, to report back to you on, uh, on the goings-on in, uh, in the space program these days. So, you know, as we talk of the, of the space program, I think I, I'd be remiss if I did start with, you know, the uh, human exploration aspects of space. And if we're going to talk about the human exploration aspects of space, um, then, you know, the ISS, of course, is usually the, uh, the showpiece of our, of our astronaut uh, program. Um, but I do start with this because uh, I will delve uh, shortly into, uh, into the future. Um, but as we look at the future, I think it's very important to see where we came from and what we've learned. So over the last 20 years, we've been on the ISS, right? 24-7, haven't missed a beat. We've been there permanently and we've done a ton, thousands of, of research activities, just been a tremendous amount of science done on the station. We've had many, many discoveries that have been applied back on Earth, by the way. A lot of what we do in the labs on the ISS have the Earth as the line of sight in terms of providing a social economic benefit back to us, Earthlings, right? So it's been very, very successful. We've built a ton of science, a lot of new medicine has been done there. Canada's been very successful in the medical world, and I'll get back to, uh, I'll be to that later. Um, we've developed new technologies. Just being able to live and survive that long in such a hostile environment has brought some very good lessons in terms of preparing us for the future. So we see the ISS as being, you know, the, the cornerstone of the success, setting up the successes for our future. And I think one of the key elements of the learnings of the ISS is unfortunately not technologically related or scientifically related. It's about interactions between human beings, interactions between countries, interactions of us as humanity. So as we're looking to go forward as humanity would in 
exploring the rest of our solar system. One of the key lessons we've learned from the ISS is that we could not achieve success without international collaboration. And that is going to be the cornerstone of us going forward. And we are going forward. It's no secret, right? The international community is currently analyzing different scenarios, different types of architectures, different kinds of designs to take humans back to the moon and then to Mars, right? So if you're asking, well, why the moon and why not straight to the Mars, there's some lessons to learn by going to the moon, okay? So we've spent 20 years um, in low Earth orbit, still getting some protection from Mother Earth, the halo effect, um, that kept our astronauts somewhat safe. We all know that space is very harmful to the human body. Um, hopefully you've all understood and read some of the consequences uh, from a health perspective that our astronauts have to live with when they come back down to Earth. So that's with some protection from the Earth. When you go out to the Moon and to Mars, um, you get the full brunt effect of the negative effects of going into deep space for long periods of time. So we need to go back to the Moon and learn those lessons, do more research when you get full exposure. So we need to look at making sure our astronauts will be safe, will be able to come back healthy, but we also need to make sure that the equipment will be able to survive. Right? So there's going to be a ton of research still required in a cis-lunar environment. Now, um, there's also an interest uh, of going back on the moon and settling the moon. Uh, the Americans were kind of waffling on that for a long time, but the VP Pence uh, um, in the U.S. has, uh, the Vice President, um, has uh, kind of hinted of a very strong desire for the Americans to get back uh, and establish a uh, foothold uh, on the moon. There are things to be learned on the moon as well. So as we prepare for Mars, it's, it's about accumulating as many of those lessons as possible to make sure we have success when we go to Mars. So on the moon, you've got one-sixth of the Earth's gravity. Is that enough? to have your blood flow through your body um, in, a, in a way that is sufficient to get rid of most of the negative effects? Or will it take Mars at a third of the gravity to do that? Or do we need one gene to make sure that our bodily functions properly? We don't know. Right? We've been on the moon for such short periods of time that you know, we could not conclude on those things. So we need to go back and study those aspects to make sure that we can bring those astronauts back. So the moon is going to be quite interesting for us in the next uh, the next few years as we prepare them for building our transition to uh, our transition to Mars. So countries um, like Canada. Uh, the U.S., Russia, our European colleagues, and, and quite a number of other new countries that are interested in, in space exploration. Um, our teams at the technical level are currently meeting and looking at what each country could potentially contribute to this mission to the moon and this mission to Mars. Right, so all of us are in the same boat. We're doing the, the in-depth technical analysis back to our governments and say, look, we think Canada could contribute this thing, whatever gizmo that is, um, 
to this new mission of going to the moon. So, to be clear, there's been really no decision in terms of Canada's going to do this, or the Americans are going to do that, or Japan's going to do that. Uh, we're all having discussions and we're all negotiating what, uh, what those contributions can be. But we are preparing. Okay, so we have today issued a number of, uh, of contracts because we're going to industry to tell us what is the latest and greatest in particular fields that have been, you know, classical contribution areas of Canada in the past. So robotics, uh, visual systems, relative navigation. You know, there's, there's five or six of those RFPs that have been issued already. So we're going to the industry and saying, look, um, we need to know what is the state of the art in that particular field and what are your capabilities? What could we build? What could we eventually pitch that we could contribute? Right? So those are ongoing now and we're going to start to get the results in the you know, mid-2018-ish. Uh, at least the first results then and then a little bit uh, peppered throughout the, the fall of 2018. So there's quite a bit of work taking place with respect to paving the way uh, for humanity to, uh, to go back to the moon. And I think some areas are, are quite innovative um, from our perspective. So um, although we've, we've provided some contracts to go and look at those areas that are more classical for Canada, like I said, robotics, optics, and that kind of thing, um, we did produce a, a, or issue an RFI um, to just go out there and ask for innovative ideas in whatever area. Okay, so we've got our classic contribution. We're now going to Canadians and we've gone to industry with an RFI to say, what else is out there that we haven't thought of that's innovative? Maybe even flaking and off the wall, right? There's creative companies throughout Canada that have not been involved in space. So we tapped them on the shoulder and said, hey, you know, could your gizmo be applied to space? Could you adapt it? Could it be helpful? And interestingly enough, we got a lot of traffic on the, uh, on the posting website for the RFI. And we've started to receive some very interesting proposals. And yes, there are some that are absolutely creative. Will that lead to something different? Don't know. But we're out there, we're asking, we're engaging um, our SMEs, our, our, our innovators, our inventors out there, you know, to see if we can get some traction in something different. Trying to be innovative. So actually, this is quite a lot of fun, as you can imagine. Um, one other area that is um, fairly new in terms of, of putting a lot of priority on it uh, is the medical field. So we've done a lot of research on the ISS in the medical field. Right? We, we currently have a number of experiments there today. Some of the folks working on some of those experiments are in this room, Merrill, for example. Um, I know some of our researchers are here, um, and we continue to do that. But throughout the course of the last 20 years, Canada has sort of developed a reputation for, for being um, a, a big contributor in the biomedical field in space. Well, why not see if we can take that to the next level? Right? So we've convened a group of, uh, of medical experts that are working with 
our flight surgeons, our, our, our space uh, uh, medical experts at the CSA, and we've convened a conference next week. Um, we're expecting about 150 medical specialists. And we're going to get together and look at how um, Canada could contribute uh, you know, some medical capabilities uh, for the future missions to Moon and Mars. So we've contributed somewhat for the ISS, now we're looking at what can we do more than that as we take the next step forward. So quite exciting um, environment to, uh, to be in. And as we prepare the future, it's not just about technology. Um, we've taken some radically new approaches with respect to outreach. So, you know, there were some budget cuts in the past and we had to drop a lot of our education programs, a lot of our outreach activities. We'll tell you what, we're back and we're back with a vengeance. So, we've now dedicated uh, quite a number of resources to making sure that we can leverage the inspirational effect of space. Right? Hopefully, you are aware, space has a very big impact on youth with respect to inspiring them to stay in a STEM-related field. So we, keep, we need to continue to do more. Now, we've done a lot, uh, but that's just the beginning. Really, we need to take this outreach and STEM activities and education <coughs> to the next level in the next few years. That's going to be quite interesting and quite a lot of fun, as you can, as you can imagine. And shamelessly, we use our astronauts as much as we can. Um, they know that we use them for that purpose. We abuse them for that purpose. Um, if you've ever had the opportunity to see an astronaut enter a school gymnasium, um, if you haven't, I highly recommend that if you have an opportunity to go, either as a parent, as an uncle, or as a grandparent, you've got to see it. You will never see such young eyes open that wide when an astronaut in flight suit walks into a gym. And then, of course, these are very eloquent speakers and they're able to sell the goods very, very well. So when you start to combine in, in young people this combination, this juxtaposition of a, a big positive emotion and some learning, then you've locked it in for life. And that's when we're able to make the biggest impact. So I'm not afraid to say that we shamelessly use our astronauts to create that emotional binding effect in youth that will hopefully lead them to choose a career in a STEM field. So um, I should, I would, I'd be remiss if I, if I did not also acknowledge the fact that um, as much as we use our astronauts, there's quite a number of other speakers uh, non-astronauts that have had a great impact with respect to STEM. We've held about 100 activities um, in the last year um, alone, and we've reached about 20,000 people with 100 activities. So clearly you can see that space draws, right? It usually fills an auditorium, it usually fills a classroom, when even some of our engineers 
uh, go out to speak. And I do know that there's quite a number of uh, speaking programs with our uh, academic and our uh, industry colleagues as well. So it's a good thing that we've got quite a number of, uh, of uh, folks with, uh, with space backgrounds that are out there and are communicating to you benefits of staying in the STEM environment. And in particular, if they're actually going to go into STEM, we'd like them to come to space. Um, you know, that's just icing on the cake. So quite a number of activities in that, uh, in that field. Um, and to, uh, to illustrate that, um, as you know, we've just recruited two new astronauts, right? Josh and Jenny on your left. You can see that they're not wearing their wings on their uh, left uh, uh, breast pocket, uh, whereas our two other astronauts, uh, David and Jeremy, are. Um, so our two new young astronauts are in training, basic training for two years before they get their astronaut wings. Um, David is currently in, uh, in training in, uh, in Russia. He's been given his mission. When we give an astronaut his mission, there's a, a, a two-year preparatory phase where he's fully dedicated to understanding um, well, flying the Soyuz spaceship in this particular case, um, but also understanding all of the scientific experiments that they're going to have to conduct on the ISS. Right, it's a full two years of, of cramming uh, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, knowledge. So, um, as we, the reason why I bring up the astronauts as part of our outreach, my outreach discussion is that um, we used the the uh, staffing or the hiring the recruiting of our two new astronauts to bring to Canadians out there a perspective of how talented Canadians are. So we knew that with the thousands of applicants that we were going to get some really, really um, exceptional individuals that would apply. And when we got the numbers down to 70, we posted their pedigree on our website, our social media. It exploded. We were hoping it would, and it did. So we wanted through this to instill a sense of pride in Canadians out there, not necessarily Canadians associated to space. When they saw the talent of all of these Canadians, many of them were in awe. We got a lot of letters from teachers, from guidance counselors, telling us that they're now using these real-life examples, these 70 candidates that we posted, as examples to show kids that were experiencing some problems, that, hey, you know, you can make it. You can achieve a similar life experience as these individuals. These are not makeup. Dreams. These are real individuals that we're looking at. And you can achieve such success. So they're using them as examples. We weren't expecting that, to be honest with you. That was really, really great to hear. But what happened when we posted it is that all of a sudden, University of Jane realized that Jane was now an astronaut contender. So the university, in its internal communications, would communicate to the 70,000 students at the university that, hey, one of ours is in the running, right? And Joe from, you know, some remote area in, in, in 
northern Quebec, um, would also be in the running, and his local regional paper would do a coverage on, on uh, his achievements and the fact that he's a contender for the space program. And all of a sudden, without our involvement, we got a ton of communication um, activities taking place, and all of it gearing towards the fact that we've got some exceptional people in Canada, and we should be proud of them. So in the end, without paying for any publicity, we used to pay for publicity to advertise the astronaut recruitment and whatever. We did it all through social media. It was a fully 100% organic campaign. All right? Um, we achieved 22 million impressions in social media. Now, that's not quite rock star status, but in Canada, it certainly is noticeable. Right? So taking that opportunity to build private Canadians was also part of our outreach plan, and it was quite successful. So, all that said, being said, um, space is evolving. You all know that. Um, hopefully our industry folks spoke to you about that yesterday, um, using words like new space, and commercial space, and, and whatnot. Um, it's going fast, and I think it's for the benefit of all. Right? So things are, are faster to build, they're cheaper, they're safer. So, what does that mean? Well, certainly for, from a government perspective, it creates new opportunities. And with a fixed budget, it now means that we can do more. We can fly more, we can build more, we can design more. So this is quite an exciting time for us to be in the, uh, in the space program. And because things are evolving, um, we need to make sure that you know, the government, the Canadian Space Agency in particular, is benefiting from all of that. That it's, it's modernizing, right? That it's prepared for what's changing out there. So that we're not stuck in the, in the, in the back. And um, we've put a lot of emphasis on modernizing our approaches at the CSA to make sure that we were not gonna end up being a closed, um, you know, inward-looking organization. So, over the course of the last year, um, we've gone out there in terms of engaging the public. Uh, we've gone out there in terms of opening up the channels of, of communications with a number of, uh, of, uh, of groups and subjects. So, for example, um, just last week, we had a, a full-blown meeting of uh, an atmospheric a, a science, atmospheric science community. Um, we held a conference at the, at the CSA um, where they discussed the latest and greatest in atmospheric science. Right? What kind of essential control here, what kind of, of, of environmental variables should we be concentrating on collecting? What priorities should we give to developing one particular science over another? Right? What are our international colleagues focusing on that Canada could participate in? Right? So we've now put together five such <coughs> communities in various fields, and the objective is to make sure that the CSA is going to be understanding of what's out there, but not through our own ears and eyes, but through the eyes and ears of specialists in those fields. 
So I, I don't have to hide from you that yesterday, yesterday last week's uh, atmospheric meeting was quite the eye-opener for us. And I think we're doing one this week or next week on uh, Sun-Earth science. We actually, Sun-Earth? Okay, so I knew it was one more, but so another group to look at the Sun-Earth kind, of, uh, kind of sciences. Um, so these are going to be regular meetings. So we need to make sure that the CSA is open, is engaged, and is receptive to these new ideas out there. So I talked about modernizing our approaches. We've also talked about, we also should uh, mention that we are also looking at modernizing some of our processes. Um, we have a, a program, those of you that are not quite familiar with, uh, with the, the Canadian Space Agency, um, we have a research and development program where companies and, and universities can apply and get some funding to do some, some research and development. So it's the uh, Space Technology Development Program, STDP. Very popular program, um, but it was run pretty much as per the old days, the classical, we issue, uh, you know, a call for uh, interest and, and we evaluate some of the submissions and we, you know, um, pick the winners and, and provide them with some, some support and some funding. But we knew that that was classical and we knew that we looked at, we needed to do a more um, innovative, take a more innovative approach to this. So we collaborated with industry. So there's some associations for some of the companies in the, uh, the space world and we've, we've uh, collaborated with those associations, with that association, uh, the AIC uh, Space Committee. And we formed, um, I think it was six or seven uh, working groups on a, on a number of subjects, ranging from modernizing our R&D program to how we can collaborate with outreach and communications. So it was a, a full spectrum of collaborative work. And um, the working groups are to provide uh, recommendations. So the working group on modernizing our R&D program provided a list of, uh, of recommendations. Um, and we, we run cycles of this every year, every two years. So we are about to finish one of the cycles where we've implemented upwards of, of half of the recommendations of this committee. And we're hoping to implement the other half when we do another cycle of, uh, of STDP. Some of the improvements, uh, for example, the SMEs, uh, the small businesses, businesses have told us that it's hard for them to compete against the big companies like MDA and, and Magellan and Honeywell um, on STDP when they're that big compared to them being gigantic. Um, so they wanted access to um, some funds for themselves, smaller uh, amounts of money, but that would, be, that would be targeted to small businesses. So we've done that. One of the results that we're seeing now, because this competition is still on, we uh, have not announced uh, uh, any of the results. We're still in the evaluation phase of the submissions that we that we got. Uh, but one interesting aspect of, uh, of the changes that were done, um, we've seen uh, uh, a good number of new small businesses apply for this. Businesses that are not in the space program. Right. So uh, for me, this is groundbreaking. The more that we can attract companies to now join the, the space community, the better that we the space program will be in the end. So, you know, in its own way, this modernization of this program has contributed to bringing in non-space players into uh, into the family, into the fold. 
again about developing skills. Um, clearly, hopefully, I'm leaving you with the message that you know uh, activities targeted to youth and preparing the next generation are quite important to me. Um, with respect to uh, skills, one of the, the the activities that I'm quite proud of, um, we've we've sort of reinitiated. Um, the activity of bringing students with us when we go to international space conferences. So, the IAC is, is, is a conference well known to people that you know are, are into the, the space field. So it's the annual largest uh, space events and international conference. So, for the last two years, we've held competitions, national competitions, um, to bring 10 to a dozen or so students with us when we go to international conferences, uh, and they have then the opportunity to present their papers. One of the students is here in the room, in fact. Um, so by doing so, we help develop these students by putting them in you know, a quite demanding environment, presenting a paper at an international conference when there are hundreds of attendees. Um, is not easy to do, first of all, but it holds their skills to a number of, of different competencies. Um, and while they're there, we highly encourage quite a number of networking activities. So that's been quite successful. And we also take the opportunity um, to go even further in terms of their development. Um, once they've finished their, their presentation at the International Conference, we also try to do a matchmaking exercise with respect to providing these students um, some kind of, a, of an employment opportunity at the agency. So either a summer job or, or some kind of a co-op, co uh, uh, well, period or, or whatever, some kind of vocational employment, um, to give them that additional experience. So it's not really that we're looking to make sure that, you know, since, since this was a competitive process, usually a few hundred students apply and we pick 10. So you can imagine the 10 are quite talented individuals. So our objective of hiring them for a summer is not to keep them into the CSA. It's just to continue with their development. And in fact, if they spend four months, five months with us, and they decide to go to academia, to do research, to, to industry, to work in the commercial field, well, that much the better. Because now we've got someone who's been inside the CSA, has seen how we work, has made some personal connections, and it's got to be a great investment with respect to the space program. Right? So we do quite a bit of those, uh, those activities now. <coughs> Um, in terms of, of building specific technological skills, so we've launched our program for CubeSat. For the last six months, we've been advertising it and doing some Facebook Lives and a lot of WebEx and, and conference calls to prepare the, uh, the university communities to do this. The objective with our CubeSat program is to fly a NanoSat from each of the provinces and territories, 13 of them. Right? This will provide hands-on, real-life experiences to teams of students and professors out there. We're planning on launching each one of the, uh, the uh, nanosats from the ISS in 2019-ish. So they're actually going to see something that they've built flying in the space. 
So again, it's binding that emotional pride that you get from doing that with knowledge. And once you bind those things together, it's there for life. Okay, so we're back into that business of investing into specific um, uh, development of competencies in post-secondary institutions. Okay, so we're preparing, building capacity. That doesn't mean that we don't have you know, real things happening. Hopefully you're aware of these two missions. Um, James Webb and uh, Osiris Rex. Few things for you that are less familiar, uh, for those people that are less familiar with space. Um, James Webb is a, uh, is a space telescope. It will be sent a few million miles from Earth um, to make sure that there's no interference in, uh, in, its, uh, in its measurements. Um, and it will be in its most precise observation mode it will be about a hundred thousand times more powerful than Hubble. Right, so go back in, in, in time for the last 20 years and assess the amount of discoveries we've made with the Hubble Space Telescope. Now, just try to phantom what we will now discover with James Webb. It's just mind-blowing. The science we'll be able to achieve here is absolutely incredible. And James Webb is an infrared telescope. It will not have the same limitations as Hubble, which was optical. So you've all seen pictures of galaxies and clouds and nebula, right? That's gas matter or even particles of dust and whatever. Hubble can't see through that. James Webb can. So in fact, we're gonna see galaxies collide. We're going to see the formation of new galaxies. And because with Hubble, we can't see it. There's too much dust. It's cloudy. With, with James Webb, we'll be able to see it. So this is going to be absolutely fantastic from a scientific opportunity. So the discoveries of astrophysicists for the next 20 years are just going to be and one good thing about it, Canada contributed two key uh, payloads to the James Webb Space Telescope. And to give you an idea of the credibility of, of, of Canada's universities and, and industry, they are the two most critical elements of James Webb. One of them is the fine guidance system. So imagine you're looking I don't know how far in, in light years. <coughs> Astrophysicists, please excuse me, I'm not that you know, knowledgeable of, of, of that field, but um, let's say we're looking hundreds or thousands of light years away. The fine guidance sensor is what will actually ensure that the telescope is looking at the right spot. Imagine when you're looking at something that far, even a micro nanometer, a nanometer off of what you are expecting to do, and you're probably looking at another galaxy, right? So the collaborative partnership here understood Canada's strength and gave Canada the responsibility of making sure this telescope looks at the right spot when it looks that far down the line. 
So I think it speaks greatly for Canadian capacity going forward and, and, and the strength of our, of our universities. OSIRIS-REx, another exceptional mission um, in Canada contributed a laser altimeter. So the, um, the, uh, you know, the spacecraft has just finished orbiting the Earth in its slingshot uh, back into uh, outer space now um, to meet Bennu, an asteroid that every 150, every 250 years comes rather close to Earth. Um, so we need to study this, uh, this asteroid and uh, the spacecraft will actually reach Bennu in August 2018. And then the Canadian payload uh, will map the, the asteroid um, over a two-year period so that we can get a 3D rendering of this, of this asteroid. So what kind of matter? Where is it dense? Where is it soft? Sand or whatever? Um, so that at some point, after two years of analyzing it, um, the uh, OSIRIS-REx will actually go um, within a few meters of Bennu um, and will extract some soil from it. That it will bring back to Earth um, after about a two-year journey. So by 2024, 25-ish, um, we will have on Earth uh, some soil from one of the oldest asteroids that we know. And our geologists are going to have an absolutely incredible opportunity to study material from our space. Okay. So another fantastic Canadian contribution. Okay, so the future is a bit closer than we think, yes, because we've got a lot of interesting things happening in 2018. I did mention uh, that uh, David will be, uh, will be going to uh, the International Space Station. Um, he is uh, scheduled to launch in uh, August 2018. So that's just a, a few months, uh, uh, sorry, November 2018. That's just a few months from now. Um, and he's in, uh, he's in Moscow and absolutely enjoying the training. And if ever you're able to meet David in person and you really want to get it going, uh, have him start talking about some of the ex-scooping teachers that he has to, uh, he has to learn from uh, because they can be kind of rough. So when you have someone like David, um, and I don't know if you know, but he's a medical doctor, he's an astrophysicist, he's got, he's got more degrees than I have birthdays. Um, so very intelligent person. When David tells me that his two years of mission training is some of the most demanding that he's had in his life, you go, oh, okay. If an individual as exceptional as him, with all of his qualifications and degrees, finds it demanding, um, can't imagine what I would do going through that kind of uh, that kind of rigorous training. So it is quite uh, quite demanding, but that is quite successful at it, and uh, we're looking forward to uh, to his mission. And we are going to make a uh, a big outreach event while David is in uh, is in outer space. Um, we are also going to launch a constellation of three satellites that are going to look at observing the Earth. So the RadarSat constellation mission, scheduled for August 2018. So this is going to take our Earth observation capabilities to the next level, and we're quite anxious to see that operation. So all in all, um, I wanted to quickly give you an overview 
of all of the things that we are doing at the, uh, at the agency. As you can see, it's a, quite a dynamic environment. Um, we're continuously modernizing the agency to make sure that we can benefit from the modernization that's happening in industry, with commercial space, but also with our universities, because there's a ton of new science that needs to be uh, conducted out there. We have a lot of reliance on our Canadian scientific expertise to make sure Canada's well positioned to go forward. So, dynamic, exciting, um, at the leading edge of science, and the future looks very good from the point of view of, you know, humanity's next uh, expo human exploration missions going to the moon and Mars, as well as making sure that, you know, satellites that are, that are in and around the Earth providing us benefits like communication, satellite communications, um, search and rescue, GPS and, and whatnot. Uh, we need to make sure that those things are always at the, uh, at the state of the art to make sure that we get as much benefit as possible when we use assets from space. So I conclude by saying basically that space is, is one of those rare disciplines, rare environments where we are both uh, a developer and a user of disruptive technologies. So those of you that operate in the space world, um, I hope you'll find the future to be very, very exciting. Those of you that are not, I hope that you'll join the space family because there's a lot to be done and it's going to be quite exciting. So thank you very much. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Q podcast. If you have comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode. You can also find Space Q on Twitter at Canada in Space and we post all our articles and podcasts to Facebook at The Space Q and don't forget to like us on Facebook. I'm also on LinkedIn at Mark K. Boucher. And if we're connected, you'll get Space Q articles and the podcast notification in your newsfeed. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider rating the show and writing review if you're so inclined.